You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from student minister Andrew Beal. There's this old story, this old legend that the famous author Ernest Hemingway was once challenged to write a story using only six words or even less. And as the story goes, he sequestered himself to his writer's room, did some work, and he came back out with what he himself said was his best work ever. His six-word story was this, for sale, baby shoes never worn. Now, in those six words, there are a lot of different interpretations out there. I, myself, I think I first heard this sometime when I was in college, and I always took this to mean as Hemingway didn't have much of a childhood, but he did have these baby shoes that he had. Since there's no sentimental value attached, he may as well sell them, at least get some money out of it. So I got online and looked to see what the experts' opinions on this were, and I found that my interpretation was nowhere to be found among the experts. But anyway, this is a very popular story, especially in literary circles, and this idea, this challenge that Hemingway once had, has spawned many over the years to write their own six-word memoirs, as it's come to be known. People have been drawn to the challenge of carving down their lives to a six-word limit. I was online early this week, and I found some examples. Here are several. Cursed with cancer, blessed with friends. Love me or leave me alone. I still make coffee for two. Hockey is not just for boys. I like big butts, can't lie. Should never have bought that ring. Finally realizing I am good enough. Teaching 18-year-old poetry, pray for me. Everyone has scars, everyone has stories. And lastly, normal person becomes psychotic on Facebook. Now, in each of these six-word memoirs, you can tell someone's mindset, you can kind of tell what their values are, even just how you know, their stage in life, just how they feel about the world they live in. Something about these six words make them get straight to the point. I even looked at some possible six-word memoirs from those who can be found in Scripture. For instance, Peter, Jesus' favorite student, his disciple that he spent the most time with and who started the church as we know it, these could have been his six words. You are the Christ. God's son. His entire life could be whittled down to that idea. Or perhaps Paul, who at one time was calling for the murder of Christians, who later became uh, the most well-known missionary throughout history. Perhaps his six words could have been, chief of sinners saved by grace. I really thought this one was powerful from Mary, the mother of Jesus. Manger, pain, joy. Cross, pain, joy. And if Joshua, the man in the Old Testament book that we're studying uh, today and the next several weeks, if he were to come up with a six-word memoir for himself, this is the one that I wrote for him. Be strong, be courageous, trust God. We're beginning uh, this weekend a brand new five-week series called Victory. You may have gathered from the bulletin or the word victory on the wall behind me. And we're going to be going through the Old Testament book of Joshua. Actually, not just this series, but the next series as well. We're splitting into two different message series. 
And the book is 24 chapters long, and it sees God using the leader Joshua to bring all of the Israelites, all of his chosen people, into the promised land. Last weekend, we had uh, about 650 people join us for the Easter services, and we wanted to follow up uh, that Mark series and that Easter Sunday with a series that focused on victorious living. How does the Bible uh, define victory, and how does that compare with how the world might define victory? So we're going to spend several weeks looking at how God and Joshua interact and relate to each other, and out of that... We get to look at how we ourselves interact with God and how he deals with us in return. You know, questions might be raised, like what happens when we do everything that God asks of us to the letter? What happens when God asks us to do something that we perceive is impossible? What happens when we're seemingly surrounded by enemies and roadblocks to a Jesus-centered life? What happens when we rebel? What happens when we meditate on God's word continually? And what happens when we're strong and courageous? Like any book of the Bible, I think it's important to know exactly where this book falls in the chronology, along with the other, 66 book, other 65 books. Excuse me. So Joshua, it is the sixth book of the Bible, and it comes on the heels of the first five. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Joshua actually starts kind of a new direction or a new uh, genre as far as the entire biblical story. But those first five, they go all the way from the creation of everything all the way through the end of Moses' life. And we're actually going to be spending plenty of time with Moses this morning as well. Here's how those first five books basically go. God creates man to be in relationship with him. But then man rebels and the world becomes sinful and broken and imperfect. But God wants his people back anyway, so, uh, because he loves them. But as we know, people are arrogant, we're self-centered, we're stubborn. So God decides he is going to choose a people to call his own. And he begins this choosing with one guy named Abraham. And he pops up in the 12th chapter of Genesis. So God chooses Abraham and he makes him three distinct promises. He says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. You're going to have a lot of descendants. I'm going to give this nation a bunch of land. And I'm going to bless this nation. Nation, land, blessing. Easy way to remember these three promises. So Abraham says okay to this relationship, and he puts faith, his faith in God. And all three of these promises, they do come true, uh, just not immediately. In fact, all three take a long time to actually come to fruition. So whenever you hear about the Israelites or the Jewish people or Hebrews, that is God's chosen people, and they can all trace it all back to Abraham. It all started with him. Anyway, these first five books, they concern God's people growing in number, realizing they're God's people, and also getting to know who God is and what it means to be his people and his followers. And in those first five books, they become a nation. They grow and they grow and they grow in number. In these first five books, promise one, fulfilled. And they also find out along the way that when they're obeying God, then things tend to go well and they're blessed. And when they don't obey God, then things don't go nearly as well. And the Bible even used that uh, seemingly harsh word, curse, to go along with it. So God's second promise of blessing goes along when when they actually put their faith in him. In the entire Old Testament, it's a cycle of following God and trusting in him, and they're blessed, and then rebelling, saying, God, no, we know what we're doing, we don't need you, and then things aren't going nearly as well. And we start seeing that cycle happen in the book of Exodus, that's the Bible's second book, And between Genesis and Exodus, there's about a 400-year gap. 
And the beginning of Exodus finds all of God's people, his chosen holy people, in slavery. And just like God tapped Abraham on the shoulder long, long ago, he does the same for Moses, taps Moses on the shoulder, and he says, uh, I'm going to give my chosen people land, I'm going to bless them. And you're going to lead them out of the slavery, by the way. So just like Abraham said yes, Moses said yes, and he leads these enslaved Israelites out of Egypt into the desert as a free people as, after God visits those famous ten plagues on Egypt and Pharaoh. And the Israelites, they get to see God's power in these plagues. They get to see his power when they leave Egypt and they uh, get to uh, go through the Red Sea parted water on either side of them. And they get to know God's provision when they wake up in the desert every morning and there's food on the ground just waiting for them. And they get to know his presence because as uh, they wander, they're being led by God uh, with a cloud by day and with fire at night. So the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're the Israelites relearning and maybe even learning for the first time their identity as God's people. And after 40 whole years of wandering, God leads them right up to the border of the promised land. All they have to do is cross the Jordan River. That is the boundary line. That's all that's left. And at the end of Deuteronomy, that fifth book, the Israelites, they're right on the cusp of that third promise that God would give them land. That's actually where we get the phrase promised land from. And the book of Joshua, it's all about this third promise being fulfilled. They have the nation. They have the blessing. Now God wants to give them this land. But there's a problem. There's usually a problem. There are already people living in this land. And these people, these nations, they've been there for a while. And they have cities. They have homes. They have economies. And they have militaries. The Israelites have none of these things. They're nomads. They're people without a country right now. So they're going to have no choice but to rely on God if they're going to take this promised land, have this third promise given to them. So these 24 chapters of Joshua, they're all about uh, these victories that God takes his people through. So today we're going to get to know Joshua. You know, who was this leader who was chosen to lead God's people into the promised land? This guy who was chosen to uh, fight and conquer all these other nations already living there. How was he successful? What did he do right, and why does it matter to us? Joshua was actually being groomed for leadership for a long time. He wasn't chosen at random. We get to know him first at the beginning, um, uh, right at the beginning when Moses leads these people out of Egypt. He taps uh, Joshua as his second in command. Moses was Joshua's mentor, and it was always understood that whenever Moses eventually passed away, then Joshua was going to take the reins and become the new leader of Israel. And so for about 40 years of Joshua in the position, he got this front row seat to seeing how, what's it look like to have the, a vibrant relationship with God, but also how do you lead people and interact with people in a godly way? So in Deuteronomy chapter 31, we're going to see a change in, excuse me, change in leadership from Moses to Joshua. It's going to be up on the screen. This is Moses speaking to all of Israel says, I am now 120 years old, and I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has told me you will not cross the Jordan River. But the Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy the nations living there, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua will lead you across the river, just as the Lord promised. The Lord will destroy the nations living in the land, just as he destroyed Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites. And the Lord 
hand you over to the people who live there. You must deal with them as I have commanded you. So be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not panic before them, for the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. Then Moses called for Joshua, and as all Israel watched, he said to him, Be strong and courageous, for you will lead these people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors he would give them. You are the one who will divide it among them as their grants of land. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord will personally go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. Then a few verses later after this, God calls Moses and Joshua both to a private meeting. It's just the three of them. And in this private meeting, God lets Moses know that his time is done and Joshua is going to take that baton of leadership. God also lets them both know what the future, at least the immediate future, of God's people is going to look like. God lets it in that uh, it's not going to be an easy leadership role for Joshua at all. Here's how this meeting goes down. Lord said to Moses, The time has come for you to die. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tabernacle so that I may commission him there. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tabernacle. And the Lord appeared to them in a pillar of cloud that stood at the entrance to the sacred tent. And the Lord said to Moses, You are about to die and join your ancestors. After you are gone, these people will begin to worship foreign gods, the gods of the land where they are going. They will abandon me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will blaze forth against them. I will abandon them, hiding my face from them, and they will be devoured. Terrible trouble will come down on them, and on that day they will say, These disasters have come down on us because God is no longer among us. At that time, I will hide my face from them on account of all the evil they commit by worshiping other gods. And he goes on and on about how terrible the Israelites are going to have it and how they're going to behave and how he's going to be faithful to Joshua, even though pretty much no one else is going to be faithful to these promises they're going to make. And then in verse 23, he says this, Then the Lord commissioned Joshua, son of Nun, with these words, Be strong and courageous, for you must bring the people of Israel into the land I swore to give them. I will be with you. Now, this is nothing, if not a serious moment, but I have an imagination, and my imagination says that Moses breathes this huge sigh of relief, and he gives Joshua a massive hug because he's really going to need it. Leadership has now shifted from Moses' shoulders onto Joshua's. And this is commissioning. This is his divine mission. We've seen this phrase a number of times already. We're going to hear it a number of times again today and even throughout the rest of this series. Be strong and courageous, for you must bring the people of Israel into the land I swore to give them. I will be with you. Now, before we continue on with uh, Joshua, I really want to see Moses off well. In the last chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses' life comes to an honorable and rewarding end. This is what happens. It says, Moses went up to Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab and climbed Pisgah Peak, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead as far as Dan, all the land of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah extending to the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, the Jordan Valley with Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zoar. Now, those names don't really mean a lot or if anything to us. What God is doing is he's showing Moses in a vision all that he has promised his people, miles upon miles upon miles of all this geographic terrain. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have now allowed you to see it with your own eyes, but you will not enter the land. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, just as the Lord had said. And the Lord buried him in a valley near Beth Peor in Moab, but to this day no one knows the exact place. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyesight was clear, and he was as strong as ever. The people of Israel mourned for Moses on the plains of Moab for 30 days until the customary period of mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him, doing just as the Lord had commanded Moses. There are three really quick reasons why I wanted to end with Moses' life. The first is that God had the promised land ready to go even before Moses or Joshua even got there. God shows Moses the land that he led the people to. You know, God was not making this up as he went along. The promises were intact, just ready to be claimed. And the second is that Moses is just one of many people that God used over centuries to bring about his promises, and that God never once broke any of his promises, even though humans often did. And the third reason is I wanted to see that there was a very clear uh, change of leadership from Moses to Joshua, and that God, was, God called them equally, and that God was with them equally. And these guys, they were only successful in their leadership because they trusted God's lead, they trusted God's strength, and not their own. Again, we've heard them before, but we're going to hear two words over and over again as we begin Joshua 1. We're going to hear the word strong, and we're going to hear the word courageous. Joshua is told to be strong and courageous in his leadership. So I got thinking about strong and courageous, what it means and what it communicates. And I actually uh, got to thinking about the nation of Australia and their coat of arms. Uh, I didn't, I didn't uh, provide a graphic. I wish I had it up there to show on the screens. But on Australia's coat of arms, they have two animals native to Australia that are represented. On their coat of arms, they have a kangaroo and they have an emu. And they have those for two very specific reasons. These two animals are physically unable to go backwards. They can't walk backwards at all. They can only go forward. And that's their coat of arms because they want to have this spirit of resiliency and only moving forward and never being able to uh, be taken aback. That's what I thought of when I thought of uh, Joshua's strong and courageous leadership and what the nation of Israel is going to need going forward. Now today in this room, when we think of the word strong, we can think of a few things. We can think of a person as being strong, being in excellent physical shape. We can think of a beverage or a smell that is strong, being able to overpower your senses or catch you off guard. Someone can have a strong personality. If we like the person, they're a good leader. If we don't, they're annoying and we just call them a jerk. And then also maybe a movie or a TV show or a work of art can be described as strong, you know, cutting us to the heart or making us just think of life in a new way or what we believe about things. Then we have the word courageous. Maybe you think of courage, the cowardly dog. A strong drink can be referred to as liquid courage. I think of John Wayne and my favorite quote of his. He says that courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. You know, it's a very highly sought after virtue. Just to prove it, call anyone a coward and you're going to have a very strong negative reaction from them. I would think everyone in this room would like to be known as a strong and courageous person. This book of Joshua, it was written in the ancient Hebrew language. Uh, they, 
they were an oral culture means they, uh, they, many people did not, most people did not know how to read or write. So it was all, you know, oral. And with that oral language, uh, most of the words have very strong pictures or images attached with them. So they hear this word strong, they likely think of the idea of something being bound up tightly. You know, imagine using ropes and knots to secure a load or make sure something is not going to go anywhere. It's going to stay in one spot. Or they hear strong and they also could have thought of something being immovable, like a boulder perhaps, or think of a tree with a very deep, complex root system. Or if you've ever uh, owned very large dogs as pets, you know they are often immovable. And then this courageous word, to them it was actually a little different than how we understand it. Uh, To them it was closer to the idea of just being alert. The phrase that popped up in my study was having alertness of feet, meaning that whatever came your way, you were quick to respond. And you were not only quick to respond, but you were skillful in your response as well. You were swift-footed. You were never caught off guard. So we hear this word, be strong and courageous. They would have understood it just as much as be immovable and be ready to engage. Here's Joshua 1. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River into the land I am giving them. I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set foot, you will be on land I have given you. From the Negev wilderness in the south to the Lebanon mountains in the north, from the Euphrates River in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, including all the land of the Hittites, no one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. For I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. Be strong and courageous. For you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Before Joshua even starts to lead anybody anywhere, he gets this word directly from God, and God tells him in very, very clear language everything he has to do to be successful. There are no mysteries here. There are no vague statements. God says nothing confusing. In fact, he could not be more clear on all that it will take for Joshua to succeed and prosper in all he does. In these nine verses, these first nine verses of Joshua, God is laying out a partnership, and in a partnership there are two sides which means there are two sets of responsibilities. Here are the five things that God promises Joshua in these verses. He says, you'll be on land I'm giving you. No one will stand against you. I will be with you. I will not fail you. I will not abandon you. And here's Joshua's part. Be strong and courageous. Obey all of Moses' instructions. And study the word continually and meditate on it. And this still works in 2017. He gives us the blueprint for prospering, spiritually anyway. And this promise of our being strong and courageous and God being with us, it has not stopped, even though this is, we read this from 3,500 some years ago. 
Now, we're not taking land anymore, but we are, taking, uh, we are commanded to take kingdom territory to make earth look a little bit more like heaven. Hopefully, if you've been around a long time, this won't be, you won't be hearing this for the first time or if you even know it already. But Southwest Church, uh, our mission is that we're following Jesus, making disciples. And hopefully, many of us remember where this comes from. It's Jesus' last words, his very last words to his disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Here's what he says. He says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So as we're going and as we're doing, Jesus is with us always. And if you read the whole of Scripture, it's interesting how often the idea of strength and courage serves as a reminder. You know, this phrase, it's repeated as a reminder throughout the Old Testament. In fact, there's a family in the church here, they got me a sign that hangs on my office wall. And it's this verse out of Second Chronicles um, 20, verse 15, I think. And it just says, the battle is not yours, but God's. And in my Bible, in that same verse, it tells me not to be afraid. It tells me not to be discouraged. On at least two accounts, Paul ends a New Testament letter with strong and courageous reminders. In the last chapter of Ephesians, he writes this, A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. And in the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, that's chapter 16, he writes, Be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, and do everything with love. And keep in mind, everyone, that these are all commands. They're all imperative statements. They're all commands that say, do this. They're not guidelines. They're not suggestions. They're actual commands for us to obey. You know, we have these, we have this, you know, started off with those six-word memoirs, and we even, you know, you know if we were giving Joshua words, it would be to be strong and courageous. And I've been thinking about this all week. I even was talking about this with some high school students on Wednesday night at Dorothy Lane Market. So this is very much on the front of my mind. I want to bring up the question of the idea, you know, what if Jesus were to give you words, either for your whole life or maybe even just today? You know, Joshua was to be strong and courageous. But what would God command for you in six words? Or what would he have for you in six words? Perhaps some of these. Ditch the stress, rest in me. Let go of worries, receive peace. For some, it might be just the same word uh, six times in a row. Forgive, 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 forgive. Maybe my grace is enough for you. Stop doing it all by yourself. You are loved, go love others. Be vulnerable, be open, trust others. Maybe talk to them, they will listen. Perhaps it was never, ever your fault. Life doesn't have to be serious. Or maybe this great reminder that we could all use, I have always been with you. Every week here at Southwest, we participate in communion, and it's a practice that all Jesus followers are invited to join in. And communion, it can be a remembrance of many things. One thing is, it's a remembrance of Jesus' promise of him being with us.
Jesus talks about being the bread of life. You know, we, we have this communion. We have bread that represents him and juice that represents uh, his blood shed on the cross. But this is from John 6. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, but will live forever. Uh, if you would, pray with me as we remember the promise of not just a present, but an eternity with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, for all of us, uh, help us take on remembrance of your presence with us. Uh, that you promise that you are with us always if we call us uh, your followers. If we love you, if we love your son. Um, so specifically help us as we take you know, this representative um, bread and, and juice that life is not about us, that we don't rely on our own strength, but that we rely, that we want to rely uh, on Jesus for everything. So help us feel your presence and help us treat this moment as holy, uh, not thinking a bit about ourselves, but only on your son. In his name we all pray, amen. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and 11.15 a.m.